All right. Good morning, y'all. Good to see you. Uh, so glad that you're here. I brought a little friend. I'll introduce him to y'all in just a few minutes. Uh, my name's Andrew. Uh, I get to serve as lead pastor here. Excited that y'all are here. New faces, old faces. Thanks for being here today. Uh, you know, one of the <clears throat> genres in movies that has experienced kind of a recent resurgence is the good old murder mystery. I don't know if any of y'all watch these or enjoy these. There's some over the last few years that have come out, like uh, Knives Out, uh, follow up with Glass Onions, and then you've got the Agatha Christie uh, kind of, um, you know, murder mystery novels that Kenneth Branagh has taken. So you started with Murder on the Orient Express, Death on the Nile. Uh, my family just watched The Haunting in Venice last week. Uh, any of y'all like these kind of movies, the murder mystery? Any? Okay, good. Y'all are more awake than the last service, all right? Um, so what's fun about these movies is that, you know, it's, it's kind of a whodunit. Who, who is the culprit? Who is the murderer or whatever? And so you're throughout the movie trying to figure things out. Some of you probably are more vocal, right? You're trying to call it out in the middle of the movie and you find out like, I was totally wrong on that, right? But it always ends, it kind of culminates, culminates or climaxes in this like big reveal at the end, right? Where you discover who it really was. It oh, truly was the butler or the wife or the whoever, right? Uh, it all harkens back to the OG original um, murder mystery. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Scooby-Doo. Come on now. Y'all remember, y'all remember those darn kids? They pull the mask off at the end. It's the big reveal. And, uh, right? The murder mystery. I love these things. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I- I- any of y'all ever get that wrong in the middle of it? You're trying to call it out. You're trying to guess. And you're like, man, I was totally clueless. Uh, so I'll come back around to this. This will make sense in a couple moments. Uh, we are in week number two of this series, Knowing God's Truth. And in this series, we're doing kind of an introduction to what is called systematic theology. Okay, so theology, we talked about it last week, made up of two uh, Greek words, means God talk or words about God. So we're really just literally studying about God. Uh, systematic theology is, is organizing the ideas given to us in God's word into categories like God and man and sin and heaven and hell and the end times and all of these sort of things. And so that's what we're doing. We're kind of taking a, an overall look at these different categories of, of teaching or doctrine in the scripture. Now, we don't merely learn theology, we do theology. Theology impacts how we think and how we feel and how we behave. Uh, And so, as we said last week, you are a theologian, and you are always doing theology. This is what is true of us. And so this week, we're going to answer the question, uh, question number two, what is Scripture? What is Scripture? What is the Bible? Uh, And so we're going to kind of take a dive into this. This corresponds with chapter 2. Uh, in the book, Knowing God's Truth, which, by the way, we still have uh, some available. Uh, we paid $15 a piece for these in bulk, but if you want to grab a copy, suggest a donation of $10. If you can't afford that or don't have that but want to follow along with us, man, grab a copy. That's our gift to you. We'd love for you to, to, to do that. Uh, so what is Scripture is the question. So before we begin to answer uh, that question, I want us to think about theology in, in this way. Theology differs from other fields of of knowledge in in this kind of regard. We don't 
initiate discovery or, or learning on this subject matter by what we do in other kind of fields of, of learning. Uh, we don't, like, it doesn't start with investigating and, you know, dissecting and hypothesizing. Rather, when we do the work of theology, when we, when we study and learn and explore about God, it comes as a response to revealed knowledge. Okay, so let me say that again. When we work, learn, study uh, about God, it comes as a response to revealed knowledge. In other words, God has chosen to reveal himself to us. He has chosen through his word to disclose who he is, what he is like, and what he's done in the world, and what he's created us for. He has chosen to reveal himself to us through his word. We kind of talked about this last week, the idea of what, what we call revelation, that God has revealed himself There's general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is that God, through his creation, through what he has made, uh, Psalm 19, Romans 1, we are able to look at what God has made and we can tell something of God's glory and God's majesty and his power. Um, But that general revelation, it's it's called general revelation because it's available generally to everyone. Everyone can look into creation and see God's hand. But creation and, and what he has made Uh, though it allows us to marvel at who he is and what he's done, it it does not lead us to to salvation. We need special revelation. We need general revelation is enough to condemn us of of, of our sin, but it's not enough to save us. And so we need what's called special revelation, that God has revealed himself specifically to us through his word. All right, so God has not, in, in other words, left us in the dark. He has not left us like, like we're watching a murder mystery film. Like the whole time we're trying to figure this out. Like who is behind all of this? What is the character of this person? What, what is he like? No, God has already given us the big reveal. Y'all see how I kind of pulled this back full circle? This is what I'm talking about here. God has already revealed himself to us. We don't initiate the discovery process. God has said, I want to be known. I want to know you, and I want you to know who I am and what I'm like, and so here is my revelation to you. So, what is Scripture? That's the question we'll be answering today. If you have a Bible, or even if you don't, I'm going to invite you to stand with me. We're going to read just a couple quick verses here. We do this because we believe this is God's Word, it is truth, it is life, it is God's revelation to us, and we're going to read out of 2 Timothy 3. Verses 16 and 17. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. Is, here's what the scriptures say. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is God's word. Amen. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have chosen in your grace and mercy to reveal yourself to us. God, you have not kept yourself hidden or behind a curtain. God, you have made yourself known. And so today, God, as we look into your word, God, as we consider your words to us, would you, uh, would you open up our hearts and our minds? Lord, help us to uh, see you for who you are. God, help us to um, submit ourselves to you as, as Lord because of the things that you show us. God, I pray for people in here that, that don't know you and don't know what you're like. They don't know your grace and your mercy and your loving kindness. God, I pray that you would reveal yourself uh, to every single one of us today. And so would you open our minds? Would you open our hearts? God, we love you. We thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Why don't you all have a seat? What is scripture? What is scripture? That's the question we're going to answer today. And I want to start with a little bit of a, uh, I guess a little bit of a history lesson. All right. So uh, tomorrow we uh, honor the life and the work of one Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And we ought to celebrate and honor him. But I want to, I want to back up. I'm going to rewind about 400 or 450 years uh, prior to him to the man uh, in which he, uh, from which he got his name. All right. So you may not, you may or may not know this, that uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was born Michael King Jr. Uh, his father was pastor of uh, Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, and Michael Sr. in 1934 made a little pilgrimage to Germany. And he was so inspired by uh, the stories of the 16th century Protestant Reformation, which was spearheaded by a young German monk named... Martin Luther, all right? So this is my friend Martin, pleased to meet you, all right? So Martin Luther, uh, here's what happened with Martin Luther. In 1517, he was, a, he was a German monk, part of the Catholic church, but he began to see corruption in the church. And so he began to call it out. And it started with what was, is famously known as the 95 Theses that he, he nailed to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany in 1517. And this was to start discussion and conversation to call for reform in the church. Mainly for Martin Luther, it was around uh, the area of selling indulgences. The church was, in other words, selling, it was kind of like you could buy the grace of God. You could buy kind of uh, a lesser term in purgatory, the Roman Catholic Church would, t- would teach. And so the, the church would take the money and build these grand basilicas and all of this. And Martin Luther sees all of this and he's frustrated by this. Uh, and so he's calling the church to reform. Now, in Martin Luther's day, it was unacceptable to, uh, to question uh, the church or the pope. And yet this is what Martin Luther did with his 95 Theses. And so over the next couple years, I mean, he's, he's writing and disseminating work, and he's questioning the church and the abuse of power and all these things in the church. Ultimately, it was kind of around the, the doctrine of what we call justification by faith alone. We've talked about justification. In other words, the only way that I can be justified or, or declared righteous in the sight of God, it's not by the church's authority. It's not by tradition. It's not by a pope. It's by faith in Christ and Christ alone, what Christ has done for me. And so Martin Luther, man, he's on this crusade. This becomes uh, the seed of the Protestant Reformation where, where they're calling for reform in the church. Now, 1521, four years later, after he nails those 95 theses to the door of that church, uh, Charles V, the emperor of Rome, uh, calls uh, for this, this uh, council. It was called the, the Diet of, of Worms. All right, that sounds disgusting. If y'all are looking for a New Year's diet, this is probably not the one, right? Not tapeworms, whatever. Uh, actually, if we pronounce it correctly in German, it would be the Diet of Worms, okay? Um, Diet is a legislative assembly or a council, uh, and they're meeting in a place called Worms, Worms, Germany. It's a city in Germany, okay? And so the, the emperor calls uh, Martin Luther to, to this, this deet, and uh, basically he's, he's putting him on trial. 
he's going to question him about these, these things that he's saying against the church. And so there's two questions that are posed to Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms. Question number one, as, as they lay out all the books and all the writings of Martin Luther on the table before him, the question that he asks first is, are these your books? To which Martin Luther has to you know, affirm, yes, these are my books. Question number two was a little bit tougher. Question number two was this. Will you recant? In other words, take back everything that you said. All right, you come back on all that you said. You weren't trying to come against the church and the authority of the church. Uh, so will you recant of all of these teachings and all of these things that you've said? So Martin Luther is in a little bit of a pickle here, right? Because uh, he's dedicated his life to this. He feels strongly about this. Uh, and yet, if, if he does not recant, there is, there is a chance of condemnation, arrest, maybe even execution. And so Martin Luther's response was, give me a day. Give me 24 hours. And so they reconvene uh, this deed on the next day, and Martin Luther comes before this council. Again, this is a pressure-packed situation for Martin Luther. His very life is, is at risk based on his response. And I think he gives one of the most incredible uh, responses of all time. Let me read to you what Martin Luther came back with. He says this, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have either erred, uh, that they've often erred and contradicted themselves. And here he goes, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and I am, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. He says, no, 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 no. I, I cannot, I will not recant. I am bound by the scriptures. My my conscience is held captive by the word of God. And so do what you will, but here's where I stand, and I'm not backing down. Y'all, God, over those 24 hours, man, gave him some holy boldness. He strengthened the spine of Martin Luther so that in the face of this persecution and trial, he could say, listen, I have only one authority by which my conscience will be bound. It is the holy scriptures, and I'm not backing down. And this was, this really kind of propelled this uh, Reformation slogan, which is one of really one five Latin uh, phrases, but the one we're going to talk about this morning is sola scriptura. Sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. Scripture alone. Only one authority has the right to bind my conscience. That is the word of God. And uh, it just so happens that I have, I have a, uh, a sticker of this on my MacBook as I was reading uh, this week and studying and preparing. I was like, I'm going to take a little picture for the church because uh, I believe in this. The, soul, the scripture alone is our authority. It's not the authority of the church or of any clergy. It is the authority of God's holy word. This is what sola scriptura is all about. And I think this is an important backdrop for this question that we want to answer this morning. What is Scripture? And so last week we talked about theology, how it, again, doesn't just impact 
the head, but it impacts the whole person, the head, the heart, and the hands. It impacts our thoughts, our knowledge, our understanding, how we think. It impacts our heart, our affections, our desires, our passions, and it impacts our hands, what we actually do, how we live it out. So I'm going to use this, this three-word uh, framework for the rest of our series, head, heart, and hands. So this morning, as we answer this question, what is Scripture, I want to start with the head. What do we need to know about Scripture? So as we've said, theology, it's not just an academic pursuit or a mental exercise, uh, but it does begin in the mind and then moves to the heart. There's some things we've got to know first. Jen Wilkin, I love this quote from her. She says, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. The heart cannot love what the mind does not know. So if we're going to love God, we're going to love his word, there's some things that our mind needs to know about him and about his word. Uh, so this is where we're study, starting the study in theology. Uh, this morning is answering the question, what is Scripture? Because everything that we can know about God comes from the Word of God, that he has revealed himself to us through his Word. So Jen Wilkin, another quote from her and co-author J.T. English uh, in this book, You Are a Theologian. Very simple statement, but I think it bears mentioning this morning. They said this, Scripture is the lifeblood of theology. Scripture is the lifeblood of theology. In other words, if we're going to know anything about God, what his character is like, all these other things we'll talk about over the next number of weeks, Scripture is the starting place. It is the lifeblood of this. We go to the Word to figure out who God is and what he's like. So this is, is what we're doing today. So uh, last week I brought up this, this survey, this Ligonier uh, survey from 2022. Ligonier and Lifeway Research collaborated on this uh, this report, it was called The State of Theology. Uh, there is a website if you want to dig deeper. It's www.thestateoftheology.com. I've got a link to it in the sermon notes if you're interested. Uh, last week I shared about this, how in 2022 uh, they did some research. They surveyed 3,000 people plus uh, Christians, non-Christians, trying to get an idea of what, does, what do the people, what do Americans believe uh, about these spiritual things. And so it just kind of revealed uh, some things about where we're at. So I want to read a couple based on uh, questions about the Bible in particular. So here's one that I shared last week. I just want to share again. The statement was this. The Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. So it's helpful, but it's not all literally true. There's myths and fables and fairy tales in here. And, uh, you know, about 53% said, I strongly agree or somewhat agree, right? So there was a percent that agreed and others that didn't. Second one is this. The Bible is 100% accurate, 100% accurate in all that it teaches. And if you look at uh, the, the result there, uh, it's pretty even between agreement and uh, non-agreement. The Bible is 100% accurate. So half people would say, absolutely, totally accurate. Half people would say, mm, there's maybe error in there. Uh, number three, Here's another statement. The Bible has the authority to tell us what we must do. The Bible has authority to tell us what we must do, how we live. And you'll see it's pretty even uh, across the board. In fact, strongly agree and strongly disagree, exact same, 29%. Uh, people would say, uh, yes, it does have the authority to tell me how to live. Half people would say, no, it doesn't have that kind of authority. Fourth and final one I want to share with you this morning. The Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. 
Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. Now, this was kind of positive in terms of agreement. Uh, there's a majority that would say I agree strongly or somewhat that the Bible is, is I base my beliefs on this book. But I find that kind of strange that that doesn't feel like it lines up with the other things. Like I would say, uh, yes, I, this is my authority for what I believe, but I don't think it's, I'm not sure it's 100% accurate. I think it's kind of full of myths. Uh, and it doesn't have the authority to tell me what to do. Uh, so I just think that's interesting. I just want to put that out there for your consideration. Uh, really the whole goal of this, and, and I'll share some of these throughout this series, uh, we want to think rightly about God and about what he has revealed to us. And this kind of gives us a snapshot of where, uh, where Americans and where the church in general is, I believe, on these things and why we are doing this, this series. So this morning... We're going to talk about the Bible. What is Scripture? And I want to, in this first portion, talk about the head. These are things that are explained more and, and discussed in the book. I'm going to kind of do a quick, uh, a quick overview of these things. But the Bible is at least seven things. At least seven things. I think four or five of these are covered in the book. I'm adding a, a couple extra. Uh, and we'll walk through these quickly. But I put this in the form of kind of a graph uh, visually so you can see this. So the Bible is inspired, which I believe that is kind of uh, the foundational one out of which all the others flow. So this is what we'll talk about for the next few minutes. The Bible is inspired. The Bible is authoritative. The Bible is infallible. It's inerrant. It's clear. It's powerful. It's sufficient. All right, so number one, here we go. The Bible is inspired. Back to that verse that we started with, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It says this, all scripture is breathed out by God. Now, if you have a different translation of the Bible, it may say all Scripture is given by inspiration, all Scripture is inspired. Uh, the literal meaning of inspired is God-breathed. God breathed out his word. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness. Uh, let, let me share one other Scripture here. 2 Peter 1. 19 and 20, 19 through 21, actually, it says this. We have the prophetic word, speaking of the scriptures, more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Here's a phrase I want us to catch. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So all scripture is breathed out by God. Men spoke as God, the Holy Spirit, uh, carried them along. Okay, so, so here is what these scriptures are telling us uh, about the Bible. This, this, this thing that we're calling the inspiration of the scriptures. That Every text, all right, the Bible is made up. Y'all know how many books the Bible's made up of? 66, all right? So every single text has both a human author and a divine author. It has a, every text has a human author. Okay, there was over 40 human authors that God used to, to, to pen the scriptures. Uh, and so every text has a human author, but also a divine author. So there were men who, and those who wrote the Bible, like Moses and David and Peter and Paul and John and Luke and, and, and others, many others who pen scripture. Uh, so there's a human author to every text, and every single text reflects that writer's personality, their style, their tone, their background, right? And so every text has a human author, but 
also has a divine author. So what 2 Peter says is that men wrote as, as the Holy Spirit carried them along. So the Holy Spirit, although each person writing um, you know, was writing in their own tone, in their own style, the Holy Spirit was overseeing, or here's another theological word, superintending the writing of God's word. And so the Holy Spirit wasn't dictating, right? But he was inspiring the writers as they, they wrote. And this, is, this inspiration is, is the key doctrine, uh, I believe, on, on Scripture, that all these others kind of flow out of this. That if we believe that, that God actually inspired and, and, and recorded these words for us, then all these other things are true. But if the Bible is not inspired, if the Bible is not breathed out by God, then really it's all a house of cards, right? But what we see here is that the Bible is inspired. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. That the Bible is, is the very breath, the very voice, the very words of God to man. This is what this first, this first attribute is all about. The Bible is, first of all, inspired. Number two, the Bible is authoritative. The Bible is authoritative. So we don't have time to do it, but if you take this cursory scan of, of the Bible, the scripture throughout the whole thing, God always rules his people by his word, his spoken word or his written word. So back in the garden, God puts Adam and Eve there. Uh, he gives them a, a word. Right? He says, you can enjoy all of the trees of this garden. Just don't touch this one because in the day that you eat of this one tree, you will surely die. He's ruling them by his word. And then moves along into, you go into Exodus. God, through Moses, gives the people his law to rule and guide and govern them. He gives his word. We see throughout the Old Testament, he uses prophets as his mouthpiece to rule and govern and guide his people. Jesus the incarnate word, he comes in the flesh and, and he begins to teach about the kingdom of God and he's ruling uh, his people by his word. The apostles throughout the New Testament are declaring his, his word. Uh, and so God, throughout the Bible, always rules his people by his word. And if we look at God as being the ultimate authority, if he is the ultimate authority, then what he says, i.e. his word, carries with it absolute authority. If he is the absolute authority, then what he says carries with it absolute authority. Now, listen, throughout time, and especially in our day and age, this is, this is controversial. This is very, very unpopular to say that there is something, there is objective truth that has authority in our lives, right? Because one thing we don't, as human beings, like, we don't like authority because authority always infers obedience, obedience to authority. But if, God's, if God is authoritative, if he is the ultimate authority, his word is authoritative, then to disobey God's word is to disobey God. And on the on the flip side of that, to trust in God's word, to obey God's word, is to trust and obey God. His word is, is authoritative. And let me give you one example of this. The, the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, they received the word as, as such. Here's how it describes them. 
It says, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of, of men, but as what it really is, the word of what? The word of God, which is at work in you believers. You didn't, the word that we spoke to you, you received it not as just some guys coming in and giving you a word. You received it as the word of God. You received it as authoritative in your life. And this is the heart posture that, that we ought to have as well. So the Bible, number one, inspired. Number two, authoritative. Number three, it's infallible. Infallible. That word infallible just means it is true and it is trustworthy. It is true and it is trustworthy. You could literally uh, define that as, as that which cannot fail. That which cannot fail. Psalm 33, verse number 4, the psalmist says this, For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. Uh, now, I want to I put side by side with this a couple other translations. One is the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, and one is the NLT, the New Living Translations. I, I just think this is, is helpful to see these stacked together. CSB says, For the word of the Lord is right, and all his work is trustworthy. Uh, the New Living Translation says, For the word of the Lord holds true, and we can trust everything he does. So th this verse, Psalm 33, verse 4, the psalmist is declaring that the word of God is, is infallible. It is true. It is trustworthy. Uh, John Nielsen in the book, uh, I, I just want to quote him. He says this, The Bible tells us things that are true, it does not inform us of every truth. It does, however, teach us the most important truths. Right? So it's true, it's trustworthy. It doesn't tell us all the truth in the world. It couldn't contain that in one book, right? But it tells us of the most important things, and that is the truth of who Jesus is, the gospel. So infallible. So the Bible is inspired. It's authoritative. It's infallible. Here's a very closely related I word. It is inerrant. Inerrant, which means it is perfect. It is without error. It is like its author, right? It is, it is perfect and without error. Psalm 19, verse number 7, the psalmist says, The law of the Lord is what? Perfect, reviving the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect. It is without error. John 17, verse 17. Jesus in the garden praying to the Father. He says, he says about those that God has given him, he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. There is no falsehood in it whatsoever. It is true. It is perfect. It is without error. So the Bible is inspired. It is authoritative. It is infallible. It is inerrant. Number five, it is clear. It is clear, all right? So y'all will get back at me in a couple weeks if you're going through the Bible reading plan and you come upon the book of Leviticus and you'll go, I disagree, right? Uh, or maybe if you've read Daniel or uh, Revelation, you look at some of that stuff and go, that is clear as mud, right? Uh, so that's not, it's, not, it's not saying everything is easy to understand. What it's saying is that though some things are more complex and granted challenging, the basic truths are clear and easy to understand. In other words, any, any average person can pick up the Bible read it, and understand it. That's why some people could read the Bible and come to faith in Jesus with, without really any help because it's, it's 
We're able to understand it. God wants to be known, and he has not hidden himself. All right? So this, this, does, this means that you don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to know Greek or Hebrew. Uh, no. And, and actually, this, this whole idea of sola scriptura, back in the Reformation, this was, this was such a big part of this that, that Martin Luther said, and the Reformers said, hey, listen, the, the, the word of God is not just the property of the church, that we have to come to church or hear a, a preacher or a pope uh, declare the word of God to us. No, this should be accessible to us. It should be accessible to the plowman and the blacksmith and the, the mother and the child. It should be available to everyone. And this was part of that sola scriptura, that God has revealed himself not just to church people, not just to the clergy, but to everyone. And, and this is the beauty of, of, of this, this term, this idea that the Bible is clear. Psalm 119, 130. It says this, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to who? To the simple. To the simple, not to the scholar, to, to, to everybody. To the simple. It gives understanding. It imparts understanding to the simple. So, the Bible is inspired, it's authoritative, it's infallible, it's inerrant. It is, number five, clear. Number six, it is powerful. It is powerful. So we would all recognize and affirm that words are powerful, that they carry immense weight when people speak words to us. And certainly that is true with God's word. But this is not talking just about that. It's speaking about the intrinsic power of, of God's word. Now, in the book, the author, uh, John Nielsen, he, he kind of points out or categorizes in three ways. Uh, creative power. And you see this from Genesis 1 on, that God speaks and he speaks things into existence. He has creative, his word has creative power. He, he also has, his word has saving power. Again, throughout the scriptures, we see that the power of God's word brings us an awareness and an understanding and even a, a conviction of, of our sin against God. It leads us to a place of repentance. It leads us to salvation from, uh, from our sins. It, it has saving power. It has creative power. It has saving power. He also points out, number three, it has growing power. And we see this in Second. Timothy 3, which we'll look back at again here in a moment, that it equips us and it matures us. It makes us mature. So it is, it is powerful. So it is inspired. The Bible is inspired. It's authoritative. It's infallible. It's inerrant. It's clear. It's powerful. Number seven, it is sufficient. It is sufficient. In other words, the Bible provides us all that we need for life and for godliness. It gives us everything we need to know God, to follow God, to please God. It is sufficient for every single one of our needs. 2 Timothy 3, let's go back there again. All scripture is breathed out by God, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Verse 17, why? So that the man of God, the people of God, may be complete. That means mature equipped for every good work. The word of God is sufficient to make us complete. Y'all listen, there is no other word and there is no other source by which we can be made complete and mature and exactly what God intends for us to be. It's only by his word. It is his sufficient word. 
Psalm 19. I think this is a good summation of, of this point. His word is sufficient. Psalm 19, we read this first verse already. It says this, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Those are all words that refer to the word of God, the truth of God. It is sufficient for all of our needs. And so the word of God is inspired, it's authoritative, it's infallible, it's inerrant, it's clear, it's powerful, it is sufficient. Now, I want to give a little bit of a side note here because I think some of you, uh, maybe in the kind of nerd category, you would ask some of these questions that I might ask. Maybe you would ask, okay, so if all those things are true, how did we get this Bible? Like, how did we get this collection of, of 66 specific books you know, uh, in the Old Testament and New Testament, how did this come to be? So we don't have time to address that, uh, but I think that's an important question. Uh, this is what we call the, the biblical canon, okay, the, the canonicity of the Bible. Like how did, how did uh, God's people uh, accumulate or put together these 66 books in particular? I think that's a great question. Don't have time to answer it, time to answer it, but there is a link in your sermon notes if you're curious and want to dig into that. How were these books selected? Uh, so that's for those of you nerds, okay? Um, wanted to make sure I put that out there. Okay, so that's head. That's all the head part. Let me talk for a moment about the heart. The heart. How does this, how does this move from our head and from head knowledge to, to our heart? Well, the inspiration of the Bible, the inspiration of God's word is closely, inspiration is closely related to another I word, illumination. Illumination. So illumination, and this is when God, God through his Holy Spirit takes his holy word and illuminates or right, brings light to or understanding to our hearts and to our minds. So it's one thing that God inspired it, but but we need for God's spirit to illuminate like his words so we can understand it, so that we can believe it. There's a, a process that we call illumination when he opens our eyes, right, to the truth of, of what he has, has said. And so if God has done this in your life, he has opened your eyes and your heart to the reality of, of who he is and what he has done, and he's convinced you of, of, of these things, that the Bible is in fact God's very words to us, that it's inspired, it's authoritative, infallible, inerrant, clear, powerful, sufficient. If God has illuminated your heart and your mind in this kind of a way that you actually believe that these are God's, these are indeed God's very words to us, then how could we not make this thing central in our lives, Right? If we really believe that God has spoken a word to us, that he has revealed himself to us, that he hasn't left us in the dark to who he is, but no, he's spoken a word to us that is inspired, it is authoritative, it is powerful, it can actually change us, right? Why would we not put this at the center of our, our lives? Why would we not believe in its power? Why would we not trust in its 
sufficiency? Why would we not submit ourselves under its authority? Why would we not love it with all of our hearts? And this is why we see often in the Psalms, Psalm 119 in particular, in verse number 97, this is kind of a, a summary statement, but you see the psalmist always making cries like this, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all day long. I love your law because it is life-giving, it is life-changing. Man, this is what it ought to do in our hearts. The more that we know about God and his word, the more that we love him and the more that we love his, his word. So head, heart, let's talk about hands as we wrap this up. How, how do we live in light of this? What do we do? So I came across a post. I've been seeing a lot of posts like this over the first couple weeks of this year. Uh, the title of this post is the number one thing you can do to grow this year. Now, does that sound like clickbait to y'all? It is. It's the best kind of clickbait, all right? Uh, the author is a pastor uh, that I know and follow. His name is Daryl Dash uh, up in Canada. Uh, but this is not like some kind of uh, new information that he gives us. Can y'all guess what the number one thing you can do or what he proposes the number one thing you can do to grow this year? Can you guess what it might be? Read your Bible. Read the Word. Right? Get into the word. It's not rocket science. And, and yet, this is based off of a study by Lifeway Research. It was done a few years ago. And, and really, it was, it was just pinpointing reading God's word, not, not even studying in depth, uh, not memorizing, even though those things are super helpful and impactful in your life. And it's just, just regularly reading the Bible. So let me read you a couple quotes from this, uh, this article Daryl Dash says this, people who regularly read the Bible scored higher on all the output goals. So reading the Bible is kind of the input and then the output are all these things that, that we're kind of called to do as, as Christians. Obeying God, denying self, serving God and others, sharing faith, seeking God, building relationships, feeling ashamed or unashamed about their faith and more. So those are all things that we're called to do and and. and what the studies show is that when we put in the, the input, when we read the Bible, it, it just naturally produces all of these other things. He goes on to say this, according to another study, people who read the Bible at least four times a week experience a number of other benefits. Now, we don't read the Bible for all these benefits, but these kind of flow out of a heart that's engaged with God on a regular basis. He throws out the number four times a week. Feeling lonely drops 30%. Anger issues drop 32%. Feeling spiritually stagnant drops 60% and more. So just reading the Bible regularly kind of produces these things in your life. And it kind of finishes up with this. If you want to grow in godliness this year, the number one thing you can do is to regularly read the Bible. But here's the problem. Most Christians don't. Most Christians don't. And listen, y'all, this isn't, this isn't come here to shame you or guilt you, but this is why every single week, like on repeat, we're going to call you to and encourage you to read the Bible. This is why we talk about this Bible reading plan. I'm not looking for you to keep up and catch up and read the whole Bible this year, but man, just regularly engaging with God will do incredible things 
in your life. Uh, I love how John Nielsen in the, the book, he, this is just one little sentence, this one phrase that I kind of hung on to. He says this, our goal is to sit under the rule of Scripture. Our goal is to sit under the rule of Scripture. Sometimes we go like, man, I just got to cruise through this reading or I just got to read it and check it off my list. And no, the, the goal is to kind of, it, it just reminds me of like, um, I don't know, just sitting under a sensei. You know what I'm talking about? This is my master. This is my Lord. I'm going to sit under the rule of the scripture because it gives me life. It helps me to know God. It helps me to know how to live my life in a way that honors God and is according to his design for my life. Our goal is to sit under the rule of scripture. Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2 says this, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so these th- all these things came to be, declares the Lord. Catch this last phrase. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. God says, this is the one that I'm looking for. This is the one who I've got my, my eyes on. It's the one who has humbled themselves, who has a, a lowly spirit, who, who trembles at my word, who sits under the rule of my authoritative holy word. This is the kind of person that I'm, I'm looking to. This is the person that my eyes are on. And so all we need to know Love and follow God has been given to us in the scriptures. All that we need to know, love, and follow God has been given to us in the scriptures. What we do with it is up to us. What we do with it is up to us. And I want you to think back to my old friend, Martin Luther. All right, I read a really cool thought this week. It said that we should do theology with ancient friends. That's kind of a nicer way of saying, like, I like the old dead guys. You know what I'm saying? Uh, do theology with, with ancient friends. In other words, we're not looking for, like, new ideas that, you know, modern contemporary authors have come up with. No, we want to we make sure we're faithful to you know, this long line of centuries worth of, of, of those who have thought through and have wrestled with and have been faithful to God and his word. So we want to do theology with, with ancient friends, all right? So Martin Luther is, is an ancient friend. And I want to think back to this, this whole matter of sola scriptura, which means what? Scripture alone. Scripture alone. If there was ever, if there was ever like a real life example of how theology doesn't just impact like your thinking, right? But it impacts how you live. Oh my goodness. This, this was the example, right? Because he put his life on the line to say, no, 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 my, my conscience is held captive by the word of God. It wasn't just like, this is what I think, this is what I believe, but I'm not going to live by it. No, 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 he put his life out there for this. And listen, I get it. Chances are very slim that you or I are ever going to call to stand on trial for our faith. Uh, probably never going to be called to recant what we believe. But oh my goodness, may our hearts be just as fiercely devoted to and believing in these things, sola scriptura, that I am bound by the scriptures, that my conscience is held captive to the word of God. 
here is, is where I stand. I can do no other. God, help me. Amen. May our hearts and our lives may be so fiercely devoted to this, whether we have to stand before somebody else and declare this or not. Amen. God, thank you that you have given us your word. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. You haven't hidden yourself from us. God, thank you that we can know you for who you are because you have disclosed yourself to us. And Lord, I pray that as we go through this series, God, even as we dig into your word and read your word on our own, God, I pray that you would just continually reveal yourself more and more to us, that we would know you more and more. And because we know you more and more, we love you more and more. And because we love you more, we, we live for you. And God, I pray for anybody here today that, that doesn't know your grace and your mercy. They only know shame and guilt disappointment and heartache. God, I pray that you would reveal your goodness and your grace to them, that you would illuminate, that you would bring to light the truth of the gospel, that we are created in your image and that we are loved by you and you have paid the ultimate price to free us from our sin. And so God, would you help us to grow in your word, help us to love your word. May we be like the psalmist be able to declare, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And so, God, would you grow us in this? Help us to build our lives upon your love and upon your word. God, help us to build all of, of who we are and all of what we do around the scriptures, your living, breathing, holy word. God, we love you and we thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>